Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In the pantheon of serial killers, Belle Gunnis stands alone. She was the rarest of female psychopaths, a woman who engaged in wholesale slaughter, partly out of greed, but mostly for the sheer joy of it. Between 1902 and 1908, she lured a succession of unsuspecting victims to her Indiana murder farm. Some were hired hands. Others were well-to-do bachelors. All of them vanished without a trace. When their bodies were dug up, they hadn't merely been poisoned, like victims of other female killers, they'd been butchered. Hell's Princess is a riveting account of one of the most sensational killing sprees in the annals of American crime, the shocking series of murders committed by the woman who came to be known as Lady Bluebeard. The only definitive book on this notorious case, and the first to reveal previously unknown information about its subject, Harold Schechter's gripping, suspenseful narrative has all the elements of a classic mystery and all the gruesome twists of a nightmare. The book that we're featuring this evening is Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunnis, Butcher of Men, with my special guest journalist and author and Professor Harold Schechter. And we're waiting for Harold Schechter to connect to the program. We'll give him a few minutes. Um, Fascinating story. Harold Schechter has been on the program, and here we go. Welcome to the program, Harold Schechter. Thank you very much for this interview. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me thank, on. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure for me for this. Um, customary question, why did you want to write this book? What was it about this book that so fascinated you? Um, well, I've been wanting to write this book for a while, uh, and um, other projects intervened. Uh, you know, I've been interested for a long time in the whole phenomenon of uh, female serial murder. And uh, when I came across the case of Belle Gunnis, which I did a number of years ago, in a book called Women Who Kill by the feminist author Ann Jones, um, I was very struck by certain features in her case, you know, that made it unique. I've written about other serial, uh, female serial murders before in my book, Fatal. I wrote about a female poisoner named Jane Toppin, who until John Wayne Gacy came along, was listed as the most prolific American serial murderer um, in the Guinness Book of World's Records. She confessed to 31 killings. But Jane Toppin, like other what they used to call female uh, American Borgias, 
after, you know, the notorious Renaissance poisoner, Lucretia right. Borgia. Um, Jane Toppin poisoned her victims. Um, they, she was a private nurse, so they were all patients, or some siblings and good friends. The thing that made Belle Gunnis very unique was the fact that she would butcher uh, the bodies of her victims after killing them. Uh, so, you know, that's a, a characteristic um, that you usually don't associate with female serial killers. So that was one thing that, you know, that caught my attention about the case. Certainly. Now, just uh, you talk about Bluebeard, but for those that don't know this legend or this story mm-hmm. of Bluebird, briefly tell us what the story of Bluebird is before we talk about this little community or this city outside of Chicago called Laporte, where all of this happens. Tell us about the Bluebeard. Uh, well, um, Bluebeard uh, is um, originally a French fairy tale um, that was written by uh, Charles Perrault, um, collected in his famous early fairy tale anthology, Tales of Mother Goose. Uh, and in the Perrault version, uh, Bluebeard is this creepy elderly aristocrat um, with a blue dyed beard uh, who weds a series of young women and takes them off to his castle uh, and then tests them by going off on a trip and leaving them with the keys to all the room uh, rooms in the castle. And he says, you can go anywhere, but just don't go into this one room, this forbidden chamber. Uh, and as soon as he's gone, of course, uh, the young women's curiosity overcomes them. They enter this chamber. Uh, as soon as they do, he returns and says, you know, you violated my trust. And then he chops them up and hangs all their body parts in the chamber. So he has this bloody chamber full of the dismembered body parts and decapitated heads of all his wives. So that, you know, that's the basic premise of the Bluebeard story. Uh, Supposedly, it was inspired by an actual um, serial murderer, a guy named Gilles de Ray, who was a French aristocrat and a comrade in arms of Joan of Arc. So the term Bluebeard you know, has come to be used in criminology, generally speaking, you know, to describe men who wed and murder a series of wives. Uh, You know, there have been some very notorious Bluebeard figures. There was a French Bluebeard named Henri Landru. Charlie Chaplin actually made a a movie, Monsieur Verdoux, that was based on Landru Uh, in our own country. Uh, there was a guy named Johann Hock. Uh, well, that was one of his many aliases who married a string of wives and, uh, you know, knocked them off. So, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's the derivation of the term Bluebeard. Right. You talk about Laporte and outside of Chicago, but also you also talk about the 
prominence of Chicago in the late 1880s. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about both of these communities. Well, you know, Chicago, um, which basically had been reduced to ashes uh, by the great conflagration of 1872, I believe. Um, anyway, had uh, you know, Chicago originally was nothing but a few kind of huts on the muddy banks uh, of, uh, you know, of the lake. Uh, and it grew at this phenomenal rate. But initially, most of the buildings, you know, were built of wood and the sidewalks were wood planks. It was really kind of a tinderbox. And then, you know, basically the whole city was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. And they rebuilt it uh, very, very quickly. It was kind of this marble of urban growth. Uh, it was the first skyscraper city. Um, so by the late 19th century, you know, it was the second largest uh, urban center in the country after New York City, uh, this great metropolis, which attracted um, these hordes of migrants from the surrounding countryside after the Civil War. And, um, yeah, so 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 that was Chicago. And, and it had a very, very large, you know, relevant to my book, had a very large Norwegian population. Uh, right. And Laporte was this little city, you know, located not far from Chicago, in a small community um, with, you know, a nice business district and uh, a lot of handsome farms surrounding it, uh, one of which, well, one of which ultimately became the residence of Belgunis, although the house um, that Belgunis moved into, it actually served as a brothel for the town. So, Interesting. You also talk about that the she's her name is Brynhild Paul's daughter Storset, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, you say there's not much known of her very early years, and but she was born in 1859, and yeah. uh, she'd worked a farm. So tell us a little bit about her early life, what it was uh, characterized by, and also the religion that she practiced here in her family practice as well. Um, well, uh, you know, as you say, I mean, Belle, um, you know, very, very little is known about her. She was obviously, until uh, her crimes, uh, you know, were discovered, completely obscure figure. Um, she was the daughter of a poor sharecropper in the small Norwegian town of um, Selbu. And, uh, you know, from what we know about her, she did all this kind of arduous farm labor as a child. Um, you know, she was a milkmaid and, you know, again, whatever sort of drudgery um, that young farm children have to uh, engage in. You know, she did. Uh, she was apparently, you know, a very, very devout churchgoer. You know, the only thing we really know about her are the few documents that exist, baptismal records and so on. Um, you know, once her crimes were discovered, there were all these stories that grew up about her early behavior, but it's very, very hard to know exactly how accurate those things are. You know, a lot of urban legends, or I guess in her case, rural legends, immediately spring up, <coughs> excuse me, 
about her. So again, um, it's a little bit frustrating when you're doing a book like this, how little information is available uh, about, uh, you know, about the early lives of these people. But other than the fact that she led this very, very hard scrabble existence as the daughter of this poor sharecropper, um, we don't know very much about her early life. You do talk about, though, that she has an opportunity to move to the U.S. because of her mm-hmm. sister. So tell us what those circumstances are and uh, a little bit about her actually coming. Talk about a name change. So what's her name now? And tell us a little bit about those circumstances that she comes to the U.S. Um, well, her sister, her older sister, had emigrated. There was actually a you know, a large uh, influx of Norwegian immigrants in the late 19th century, something I guess that would make our current president very happy (laughs) since he's always talking about more immigrants from Norway. Um, And uh, so Belle's sister, uh, you know, had invited her to come live with her. And, you know, Belle made the transatlantic crossing. Uh, Well, Brynhild made the transatlantic crossing. And when she did, she Americanized her name and became Bella Peterson. Uh, You know, she went to work apparently as a domestic and uh, a housemaid and took in laundry. Uh, you know, she came over here for the reasons that many immigrants do, um, you know, she, you know, to achieve the American dream. I mean, uh, Bell was, according to the testimony of people who knew her, including her sister, you know, very, very kind of money crazed. And uh, again, you know, having grown up under these very, very, very difficult, straightened, you know, indigent circumstances, uh, she was very eager to, uh, you know, make a good life for herself. You know, in Chicago at that time, which had the first department stores, you know, it was, uh, you know, the, the impression you get with Belle was sort of she'd wander around and, you know, she'd have her, she's like a kid with her face pressed to the glass of a candy store. Um, there were all these yeah. material uh, allurements that she wanted to be able to indulge in. So making money, getting rich, you know, became a very single-minded focus for her. You talk about soon enough, she is married uh, to a man named Mad Sorensen. He's five mm-hmm. years older than her. He's just a night watchman, and she's married at 24 years old. You say she wore a black mm-hmm. dress, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about this problem with conceiving and what this leads to for her and Mads. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about Belle uh, and one of the paradoxes of her character is that she um, had these very, very powerful maternal impulses uh, and was very, very, very desperate, really, to have children. Um, she did end up having children, though, again, among the various mysteries surrounding her uh, is the question of whether she gave birth to these children, um, you know, whether these children were acquired in other ways. The first child that she did raise was a foster daughter named Jenny Olson, uh, who was an infant born uh, to this couple that she was friendly with. Um, and when the mother died in childbirth, uh, 
Belle persuaded the father to turn over the raising of this little girl to her. Um, you, you know, again, ultimately, Belle uh, had a number of other children. Um, but again, it's it's not clear, even though she claimed she gave birth to some of them, evidence seemed to suggest otherwise, um, that she had either gotten them from orphanages or, you know, there were rumors that Belle herself had been what they used to call a baby farmer. Baby farmers were women who had taken the unwanted children of poor women um, or the illegitimate children of women. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they were kind of like makeshift orphanages. Um, the baby farmer would take in these infants and supposedly place them in other households, although some very notorious baby farmers actually murdered the infants once they took them in. Um, anyway, so, but yes, but Belle was always very, very desperate to be a mother. Fine. You talk about also that when her lust for money and success, this Mads didn't make a lot of money, $15 a week, yeah. but they did have enough yeah. money to purchase this little candy store. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that business uh, venture and what happened in terms of Mysterious Fire. Um, yes, well, as you said, they, they purchased this little confectionery shop on a, on a well-traveled uh, you know, business street, um, but it didn't do very well. And then the candy store uh, mysteriously burned down one day. Uh, nobody was there at the time except Belle and her then, you know, I guess toddler daughter, uh, Jenny, a foster daughter. Um, so, you know, there was an investigation, but ultimately the fire was ruled to be accidental and Bell and, and Mads collected on this insurance money and they purchased, uh, purchased a little house in a slightly more upscale area of uh, Chicago. And then there was a fire in that house, you know, uh, uh, again, not unlike other female serial killers of her ilk, you know, Belle was very much into committing her crimes in order to collect the insurance money on them. And at least two of them, you know, were crimes of arson. Uh, again, not it's not unusual for serial killers to, you know, to indulge in arson. Um, and then of course, her crimes escalated to homicide. You talk about homicide, you talk about taking in between 1896 and 1898, a couple years, they became parents of more than four children. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then, as well, there was, soon after, two of those died. And there seemed to be no suspicion, but you talk about uh, uh, and, and enterocolitis and hydrophallus. So the things were attributed to sort of these mysterious ailments or with mm-hmm. these children mm-hmm. dying, but that was a characteristic of some of the people in her care, wasn't it? Yeah, again, um, you know, if, if, if it didn't turn out that Bell was a serial murderer, uh, those deaths would not necessarily seem to be suspicious. 
um, because, you know, there was a very, very high mortality, uh, infant mortality rate uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the quality of medical treatment was such, you know, that, uh, you know, sometimes diseases that now would be very easily curable would prove to be fatal. So, again, we don't know whether those children died of natural causes or at the hands of Belgunis because she decided there were too many mouths to feed. Again, very, very character. During the late 19th century, you know, just uh, not that long before, you know, Belgunis was committing her atrocities, you know, there were a number of very, very infamous female serial poisoners in this country, a woman named Sarah Jane Robinson, another woman named Lydia Sherman. Um, you know, these were women who m killed a number of their own children, again, sometimes partly to collect on insurance, um, sometimes because, again, they felt, you know, the kids were just a drain on their energies and finance. So, you know, it's very, very possible, again, given Bell's psychopathic nature, that those those infants died at her hands. Um, but, again, at the same time, you know, it is also conceivable that they died of natural causes. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. you, you talk about an interesting development early on in 1897 in October when the couple was visited from a a man from the Yukon Mining and Trading Corporation. Mm. Interesting that later we find out what a master con artist this woman is. Tell us about yeah. this mining and trading corporation idea. Well, you know, that's something actually I'm very proud to have uncovered because, uh, well, actually a researcher of mine uncovered it. <laughs> um, you know, but nothing, nobody's ever uh, written about that or known about that in regard to Bell. Uh, but, you know, it's a, you know, what's interesting about it is it turned out to be a scam. You know, they were approached uh, by representatives of this mining company um, and uh, they were going to be offered shares in these gold mines in return for uh, MADS going up uh, to the Yukon and, you know, and, and working for the company. Um, but again, the whole, but, it, but they, you know, they, they had to put up a certain amount of money up front supposedly to cover, the, you know, Matt, the, the costs of Matt's transportation and equipment and so on and so forth. Um, but in return for this investment, you know, they were going to be getting the shares and whatever, whatever gold um, was ultimately discovered. Uh, but the whole thing turned out to be a complete scam and Mads and Bell ended up suing the company. Um, but it was an interesting episode in terms of what it revealed about, you know, again, Bell's lust for money, her greed for money, you know, the fact that she had no qualms, you know, about sending her husband off into the wilderness for a very extended period of time. Um, you know, she really, as her own sister testified, you know, the only feelings she really had for her husband, even though she was married to him for an extended period of time, and you know he served as the father of a child, but he was—it was just you know when she looked at him, all she saw were potential dollar signs. You know she had no human feeling for him. Again, 
as we all know, very, very characteristic of the psychopathic personality. Mm-hmm. You talk about April 10th, another fire breaks out at their home. This one attributed to defective heating apparatus. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk about the life insurance policy and sort of the luck that she had with the timing on that. Tell us a little bit about yeah. what happens with Mads and this insurance and her behavior. Yeah, well, I wouldn't call the timing luck. <laughs> um, well, I mean, basically, uh, you know, she had persuaded Mads to take out a life insurance policy, uh, which was, and, and, and then I forget the exact amount. I'm going to say $2,000. You might remember sure. better than I do. Um, yep. But then she wanted him to take out a, a, another policy for more money, like $30,000 or whatever it was. Um, yeah. So there was one day, you know, there was a day when the old insurance policy was set to expire. Uh, and the new life insurance policy would, would go into effect. So there was one day, you know, on which both policies were in effect and it just so happened uh, that on that particular day, uh, Mads came home from work uh, seemingly feeling as healthy as he had been when he left. Uh, and then within a very, very short time, uh, suddenly got very, very sick and died. So Bell ended up collecting on both insurance policies. So either that was totally fortuitous or as seems far more likely, again, given what subsequently came to light about, you know, she killed her first husband. Yeah. You talk about right after this windfall of money, she moves to a, or buys a home that was a former bordello and she adopts right. a different name. And, uh, yes. Yeah. You talk yeah. about when they were married, Mads and Bella, they had taken in a boarder named Peter Gunnis. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about this Peter Gunnis and his uh, alter or stay with. Uh, well, Bell again, Gunnis. you know, we don't know a huge amount of details about Gunnis. Peter Gunnis's stay with him. He was again apparently briefly a boarder with them um, when they lived in Chicago and had moved into that nicer house. Uh, that they had purchased following the candy store fire. Uh, he was, you know, from the one surviving photograph of him, very, very strikingly handsome uh, young man. Uh, he was a widower uh, with children of his own. And um, again, we, we, you know, the details are a little fuzzy, but after Belle purchased her farmstead porch, she reconnected with Peter uh, and in a very short time, they had become husband and wife. And Bell and Bella Sorensen was now Bella or Bell Gunnis. There was some talk about or controversy about how Mads had been killed or how he died. What what was made of that in terms of official cause of death, though? Mm. Yeah, well, there was some suspicion, um, given how suddenly and violently he fell ill and died, that 
you know, there was some foul play involved. Um, there was a couple of doctors called to the scene, one of whom in particular suspected, again, that uh, he might have been poisoned. But ultimately, you know, it was ruled natural death. I mean, again, one thing that I have come to feel very strongly in doing my researches into these late 19th, early 20th century female serial poisoners is how fortunate all of us are to be living today <laughs> uh, in yeah. terms of the kind of medical care you get. Um, you know, medicine was so primitive back then uh, that uh, it... the idea that Mads had come to his to his uh, fate by some suspicious circumstances. Tell us what what the investigation revealed. Well. Uh, you know, there was some, one of the doctors uh, suspected that possibly um, the druggist, you know, met that Mads had come back from work with this terrible headache and uh, Bell had gone to the pharmacy and that the druggist had accidentally um, given her uh, morphine instead of quinine to treat him with, um, which had, you know, which had killed him. So, uh, but again, you know the the ultimate you know diag you know the ultimate uh, medical judgment was that he had died um, of you know some ailment and possibly by this by this accident. But in any case, you know the main thing was you know Bell was never really suspected at the time at the time you know of having deliberately caused her husband's death. Things were different later when her other crimes were discovered. Now you talk about Peter's brother Gus was suspicious yeah. of his brother's death, and uh, and so what does he do as a result of that suspicion? Um, okay, so we haven't actually talked about Peter's death yet. Um, you know, Peter died very shortly after marrying. Uh, Bell uh, again under highly suspicious circumstances, even worse than at least as suspicious as those surrounding Mad's death. Um, you know, supposedly he had gone into the kitchen to retrieve his shoes, which were warming up by the stove. And when he stood up, a meat grinder fell on his head and killed him. Um, so, you know, again, there was a lot of question about, uh, you know, about Peter's death and a whole inquest into it. Again, um, in spite of the strong suspicion of many, many people uh, that, you know, that that this supposed accident was highly, highly improbable um, and that, you know, Bell had actually murdered him, uh, the judgment, you know, the medical examiner ultimately ruled that it had been accidental. uh, And Peter afterwards came and uh, Peter's brother, I'm sorry, uh, visited uh, the farm shortly thereafter and decided to take, uh, you know, Peter, as I said, had been the father of several children, and uh, the brother came and, and took one of the, the girls uh, out of Bell's care um, because he was very, very worried about her well being. 
he also asked her about the $2,500, and she had said, she told Peter that she had converted to mining stocks, but when he asked to see those stocks, she couldn't produce them. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and she had also she had also asked him to stay and manage the farm, but what was his response to that? Oh, the, you're talking about the brother? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, you know, again, he had grave suspicions uh, about the manner in which uh, his brother Peter had died. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he didn't want to hang around, which was a very, very, you know, wise move as it turned out. You talk about the strength of this woman and, and the size of, of Bell Gunnis and the kind of work that she had to do often. So as you do in the book, tell us a little bit about just her physical attributes and the kind of work that she had to do. Well, she was a big woman. You know, she weighed probably between 280 and 300 pounds. Um, you know, she, well, she had done farm work from the time she was a child. So, uh, you know, after she murdered um, her second husband, uh, she was basically there by herself on the farm for a while. Uh, and she had to perform all the, you know, very, very arduous manual tasks uh, that go with running a farm like that. Um, she was also, you know, not averse to and quite proficient in butchering the farm animals. Uh, you know, she dressed like a man. Um, so yeah, um, she, you know, she was not only having to raise these children, but take care of everything involved in, in running a farm. You talk about by the winter of 1904, she was in need of a man, and she met Olaf Limbo. Tell us how she approached these men or how these men heard about her and her farm. Uh, not long after Peter died, she began putting classified advertisements in various Scandinavian-language newspapers throughout the Midwest. Um, initially, the advertisements um, were for hired hands. Eventually, you know, she was basically putting these ads in, you know, which sometimes would say, you know, comely widow, which was quite, you know, fake news, false advertising. Um, yeah. You know, comely widow with this handsome farm is looking for a qualified bachelor. Um, you know, they were marital come-ons, essentially. Um, you know, she was men who would be able to invest in the farm with the prospect, ultimately, of, you know, of marrying her. So, and she when, attracted... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. You say she attracted a certain type of person as well, because there is... The, the victims are are numerous. To show examples, of the very first ones are indicative of, of her M.O., at least. Um, when this Olaf disappears and, and Olaf's father writes inquiring about him, how does she mm-hmm. uh, deal with these people inquiring about their loved ones? Well, she's always writing about... You know, sometimes 
she would um, try to, you know, she apparently got many, many responses to these ads, uh, and she would, you know, only pursue uh, certain kinds of prospects, you know, and ideally the ones that she would encourage, uh, you know, or guys who had very, very few family connections that might come poking around um, or whose relatives were all back in, in Norway or whatever. Um, but when, you know, but when friends or relatives, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, did inquire about the whereabouts of their suddenly missing husbands or, I mean, brothers or whatever, uh, you know, Bell would always have some excuse, you know, that they had left for other jobs or decided to go back to Norway. You know, I, I think it was in the case of Lindbau, you know, that you said that he had suddenly decided he wanted to return to Norway uh, to attend the coronation of the king. Uh, so she always had some good reason, you know, for why they had left their farm, and she was as surprised and as puzzled as anybody else um, that they had suddenly absconded. So, right. You talk about also one of the characteristics that people saw was that each man would come with a large trunk with his clothes and some of the things, his belongings, and yeah. you say that... Uh, what happened with those trunks? Well, they ended up <laughs> being, you know, being stored in a room in, uh, you know, in Bell's in Bell's farmhouse. Um, yeah. You talk about the summer of 1906, and Bell hires a local man, William Brogiski, to what? What did she get him to do on on her farm? Well, among other things. Um, she asked him to dig these holes, these pits, supposedly for her to toss trash and garbage. Um, so although he didn't realize it at the time, you know, he was really being asked to perform the function of a grave digger. Uh, but basically he thought he was just digging out garbage pits. Yeah. You talk, too, about, we talk about Jenny Olson, and this is, again, the fall of 1906. She had turned into a pretty 16-year-old girl and had uh-huh. attracted several male admirers. And one of those was Emil Greening, and he's a farmhand. What happens that year that uh, perplexes Greening? Yeah, well, Jenny, uh, again, by this point, she was the foster daughter <laughs> that Bell had um you know, had taken into her household back in Chicago and raised from the time she was an infant. Uh, and as you say, she had grown into this very, very lovely, uh, blooming 16-year-old girl. And she suddenly announced uh, that uh, Belle was going to send her away to a seminary in California. Uh, and then she, in fact, disappeared. Um, again, as far as everyone knew, she was off in California at this school. Uh, Emil tried writing her a number of times, but never got any response. Um, so, you know, he was disheartened and puzzled about that. He had been working at Bell's Farm, uh, largely so he could hang around Jenny. Um, after she left, uh, he quit that job. 
um, but he never heard from her. Nobody who tried to contact her ever got any response. You talk about uh, Emo Greening quitting in June 1907, and he is replaced by Ray Lamp Lampier, and he's 37 uh-huh. years old. And tell us a little bit about Ray Lamphire, Lampier. Yeah. Uh, well, Ray, you know, is a little bit of a ne'er-do-well. Um, he was a handyman. You know, Bell had hired a series of handymen um, to help her out with the various tasks uh, involved in her farm. Uh, she apparently would not infrequently take these guys as lovers, which was the case with Ray Lanthier. Uh She put him up in the bedroom adjoining her own in the farmhouse. Uh, he, for a while, was led to believe or somehow came to believe that she was going to marry him uh, and he would become, you know, the master of this very, very handsome farmstead. So, yeah, I mean, they were very, very closely involved for a while. But Ray was, you know, Ray was an alcoholic. He was apparently a skilled carpenter when sober, um, but he was an alcoholic and, again, something of uh, the black sheep of his family. You write of the summer of 1906, however, Bell had embarked on a correspondence with a man named Andrew Haugelin. He was a wheat farmer that saw her ad. Um, Tell us a little bit about that correspondence and what she was trying to convince him to do and how. Um, Well, Andrew, and by the way, uh, I actually was on a podcast um, not long ago with somebody of Norwegian heritage um, who told me that the name, which I didn't know until I spoke to this guy, it's pronounced Helgelian. Um, I also was always pronouncing it Helgelian. Um, but Helgelian, yeah, so her correspondence with Helgelian lasted for about 18 months and constituted like around 82 letters back and forth. Uh, is really one of the most well, those are some of the most chilling documents that I turned up in the course of my research because Bell spent, as I said, a year and a half setting this trap for this man. Um, you know, she decided uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, that he was a very, very attractive victim, largely because he had this very successful farm. He had a fair amount of money. Um he was lonely, um, not only for female companionship, but also very nostalgic for, you know, these Norwegian experiences in terms of Norwegian food and just Norwegian culture and so on and so forth. You know, that Pell kept promising him he would enjoy. Uh, so these letters, you know, which began relatively formally, you know, quickly became very, very intimate, you know, very intense on Bell's part. Um, So, yeah, she just, you know, she lured him and spent all this time and energy and effort, you know, to lure him to his utter destruction. 
Um, but when you read the letters, you know, and you realize how calculating they are, you know, and, and, and again, how, how Belle is presenting herself as this, you know, as this woman who, you know, can't wait, you know, for how much she misses him, you know, how much she longs for him, how she can't wait to spoil him, you know, with all her Norwegian, you know, down-home Norwegian cooking, you know, and there are all these kind of sexual innuendos, um, you know, gives you this very, very powerful insight, you know, into how depraved her, you know, her sensibility was and, and again, how cunning she was. Absolutely. And at the same time, we have to remember that that Ray Lamphere, being the carpenter, farmhand lover, is thinking he's the guy that's going to be able to marry her. We're going to use this, Harold, as an opportunity just to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor this evening, which is Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the U.S., and while many people know what they do, many people don't know about the types of meals you eat when you cook with Blue Apron. You're not just having burgers for dinner. You're making short rib burgers with a hoppy cheddar sauce on a pretzel bun. You're preparing seared steaks and and thyme pan sauce with mashed potatoes, green beans, and crispy shallots, all in under 45 minutes and without a trip to the grocery store. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients and building a community of home chefs. Blue Apron offers three plans, two-person meal plan, the family meal plan, and now a wine plan, six bottles of wine from renowned winemakers delivered monthly. Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes, recipes each week. Now, restaurants don't have this much variety. Blue Apron has a real culinary team of excellent creative chefs giving you gourmet meals made by you. Simple to make, delicious, feel-good food, and the quality is evident. I tried this week Calabrian chili shrimp and chicks pea stew with couscous. Fantastic combination of ingredients and flavors. It was really easy to do, and I made it. Foolproof gourmet cooking. So, Blue Apron is treating True Murder listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash murder. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash murder. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now we're talking about Ray Lamphere and Andrew Helgelin, Helgel. Pardon me, I've already mispronounced Hel- the name. Yeah, Helgelian, yeah. pardon me. Andrew yeah. Helgelian, he doesn't arrive right away. There's a many, many delays, and you, you have that, her urgency and desperation um, very evident in those letters to him. When he finally uh-huh. does arrive by January 1908, what does Bell say to Ray Lanfer, her former lover and farmhand? Um well, basically, she uh, tells him to go live in the barn. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. here again had been, you know, living in that bedroom adjacent to, 
you know, adjacent to Bell's um, and, you know, enjoying, among other things, her sexual favors. Uh, and suddenly Helgelian shows up and he's completely supplanted. Um, and, you know, uh, obviously, unjustifiably, you know, is very, very resentful of this, you know, for a whole variety of reasons. So. Now, do you you talk about again the this first national bank in Laporte and uh-huh. Bell and Andrew, but not Andrew's not the only person. Tell us about this uh, scene in the first national bank. Um, well, they go to the bank um, supposedly in order to withdraw. Uh, Hal Gilliam's money, and then the teller, you know, tells him that he's going to have to send these documents back to uh, the Dakotas. You know, the bank, Hal Gilliam's local bank, and they're going to have to wait for a while. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, you know, they come back whenever a week later, and the money's there. And uh, Bell insists uh, that Helgelian, you know, withdraw it all immediately in cash. Uh, and then Helgelian disappears. The other, the other thing that you write and is contained in the letters is what are the instructions to Andrew in terms of um, secrecy or privacy? Um well, Bell is very, very insistent that uh, that uh, Helgelian, you know, not inform any of his family members where he's going. Um, you know, she, he, Helgelian has a brother, has a sister. You know, Bell in her letters keeps telling him, "Oh, you know." Let's not, you know, don't mention that you're coming here to get married. It'll just be so much more exciting to inform them afterwards. Um, so, yeah, she is urging him to, uh, you know, to keep it a secret. However, uh, as it turns out, um, he doesn't really follow her, you know, follow her instructions on that score Mm -hmm. well you talk about that his brother he had told his brother he was going to be back in 10 days and after 10 days there's no sign so what does his brother Azel do in response Um, well his brother uh, sends um, an employee over to uh, Andrew's farm uh, who discovers this big cache of letters from Belgunis and his brother, uh, whose name, again, I am not entirely certain of the pronunciation of, but I think it's Asley, A-S-L-E, you know, immediately, you know, realizes, you know, that uh, Andrew uh, has gone off to Port Indiana, uh, to uh, finally meet this woman that he has been corresponding with for all that time. Mm-hmm. 
what happens meanwhile for Lee, uh, Ray Lamphere in terms of his relationship with Bell Gunnis? Um, well, Ray's uh, relationship, um, you know, the two, you know, there's this terrible rift between the two of them. Uh, you know, Ray, again, has been completely, you know, suddenly Ray, who has really been going around sort of telling everyone, you know, that it's only a matter of time uh, because before he and Bell get married, he's going to become, you know, the co-owner of this magnificent farm, uh, you know, now realizes that, um, uh, you know, that's not going to happen. And, uh after well, after the disappearance of Algelian, there is this dramatic uh, rift between Bell and Ray, um, where Bell kicks him off the farm. Um, you know, tells him to stay away. Uh, Ray goes to see his lawyer and says, you know, he's left his tools on the farm and he goes back and tries to get the tools. And, you know, Bell uh, has him arrested for trespassing, um, has him arrested several times for trespassing, you know, ultimately tries to get him declared insane and institutionalized. So there's, you know, this sudden vicious, bitter, you know, again, break between the two of them. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's what happens. She and, but very also... Uh, yeah, but let me just add, I mean, you know, there, there's there's one key episode there, which was the evening that Helgelian suddenly disappeared, Bell sent Ray off on an errand to a neighboring town right. and told him to stay overnight. Um, somehow this transaction, you know, that Ray was supposed to conduct fell through and Ray returned that very evening and went over to Bell's farmhouse and something happened that night, um, and that was the night that Helgelia disappeared. Uh, and what apparently happened is that Ray somehow witnessed Bell's murder of Helgelia, and you know the you know the 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 assumption always was that Ray was somehow maybe blackmailing Bell and that was the source of this, the trouble between the two of them. And, you know, Bell was just trying to get Ray out of the way, you know, by having him committed and, you know, or identified as this criminal who had something against her. Sure. What's very, very interesting, too, is that you know, unlike a summary trial, there was an actual trial for Ray Lanfear, and he hires again a, a central figure in this story, attorney Wirt Warden. Uh -huh. And during this cross examination uh, of uh, Bell, he he starts asking her some very very pointed questions 
about uh, Mad Sorensen. Tell us just sort of the gist of and the tone of this cross-examination that um, at the Lanthier's trial. Well, you know, uh, Warden, and again, I don't know that this would be permissible in a court of law nowadays, but no. um, but Warden, um, you know, Warden uh, kept asking her questions, you know, about you know about uh, all you know all the suspicions surrounding uh, Peter Gunnis's death. Um, you know the fact that you know there was always from the beginning a lot of questions about the way Peter died. Um, being you know this whole story that this sausage grinder you know had somehow fallen off the stove. You know and you know, hit him on the head, and, and a few hours later he was dead from it. You know, it just struck many people as wildly improbable. So when Sidney Warden was questioning her on the stand about these charges against his client Ray, you know, he was trying to cast suspicion, you know, on Bell. Um, and, you know, there were suspicions that he generally, you know, genuinely, you know, genuinely had, so... Mm-hmm. She. It, he also asked one question I thought was incredible was that he asked when her daughter Jenny Olson would be returning. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously there was, you know, it warded his mind uh, already some suspicion that perhaps something untoward had happened to Jenny. You say too. Meanwhile, Azel uh, is asking still about Andrew, and mm-hmm. you talk about another incident where this comes out later. Obviously, that two of Bell's children are near the cellar in the home, and you talk about what happens, what they experience in terms of Bell's reaction to them being near that cellar. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bell was. You know, by all accounts, and again, this this somewhat paradoxical aspect of her nature, you know, uh, a very loving, caring mother, but on this particular occasion, the children, you know, reported to their, you know, showed up at school, you know, very, very upset, crying and sobbing, and they said that they had sort of ventured down near the cellar and their mother had, uh, you know, had, uh, had, beaten them and, you know, yelled at them, which was very unusual for her. Right. You talk about also that there, the incident where the event where they have the new farmhand, Joe Maxson, mm-hmm. and uh, it's around 8.30 at night and he goes to bed, and then there is Bell's living with Lucy, Myrtle, and Philip. And then mm-hmm. previously they were playing some games. What happens that night? What does Maxson later Talk about what happened, what he experienced. Well, Maxon, you know, enjoyed this meal with Belle and her three children, and then he retired to his bedroom. Um, at that point, Helgelian was gone, Ray was gone, so Maxon was now occupying that bedroom adjacent to Belle's. Uh, Maxon went off to bed, leaving Belle and her children, you know, playing some kind of game. Uh, on the dining room floor, 
And then in the middle of the night, uh, he awoke, well, some smell of smoke awoke him. He initially thought it was the morning, and maybe Bell was cooking. And, you know, he woke up and then realized the house was on fire. Uh, and he uh, immediately ran to the next bedroom and pounded on the door. But, you know, by that time, the, the fire was really blazing, and he had to get out of there. Uh, there was no response from the bedroom. So he ran back, escaped through his own bedroom window, and, uh, you know, within a very short time, the entire farmhouse was completely in flames and ultimately just burned down to the foundation. Now, despite rumors, uh, there's a share of Smutzer who was involved with, uh, you know, Ray has been charged for trespassing, and Bell has written letters to say that he is harassing her. And so what Sheriff Smutzer thinks that this Ray Lamphere is the culprit and goes to look for him, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, Smutzer knew about the difficulties between Ray and uh, Ray and Bell. And by the way, one you know very important moment that we have neglected to mention was that uh, on the day of the fire, Bell had gone into town, made her you know went to her lawyer's office, made a last will and testament, you know, told a number of people, including her lawyer, that she was afraid that Ray was going to kill her. Um, so, you know, she really made it known somehow that she was in imminent danger of being killed by Ray Lanfear. Um So, yeah, so so Smutzer was very, very, very well aware of the, you know, the difficulty between Ray and, and, uh, and Bell. And uh, he sought out, he sought out Ray. It turned out Ray, in fact, had been, very close to the farmhouse at the time of the fire. He claimed he had been walking uh, to a job he was doing and saw the farmhouse uh, in flames, but he didn't alert anybody for whatever reason. So, yeah, a, a suspicion immediately alighted on Ray Lamphere for having been the cause of the fire. You have the investigators go to that building, the the home, and it's almost completely destroyed. And the fire was an intense fire, as you as you write. And then all that's left is the cellar, and so they start digging to try to find the remains of Belle and her three children. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that effort to find and identify, and what happens in that identification and search. Yeah. Well, I mean, once the ashes had cooled sufficiently, uh, investigators began excavating the rubble of the cellar, which was the only part of the house that was left. And, yeah, eventually they this uh, woman's body um, clutching the very, very, you know, the incinerated corpses of these three children. Um, the immediate assumption was that Bell had awakened, you know, while the fire was blazing and, uh, you know, and, and her children had run into her bedroom and, and Belle had, you know, taken them to arms and maybe tried to save them. Um, but that they had all died in the fire. I mean, initially in newspapers, Belle was portrayed as this heroic mother, you know, who perished in this conflagration. 
you know, while trying to shield her children from them. The one, you know, the one detail, the one feature uh, of the case, you know, that was, and even to this day, you know, remains highly, highly, you know, controversial and, and raises all kinds of questions about the case is that the woman's body was lacking a head, um, was just a, a torso, and what was left of the limbs. So, but, you know, the initial thought was somehow the head had disintegrated uh, in the fire. Right. Now, you talk about also that um, that in, in this dig, in this excavation, at one point they asked Maxon if there was ever any holes or dirt dug up in the spring. And so what does he say as a result and what is discovered? Well, I mean, initially, well, what happened was um, that uh, Aisley Helgelian, um, who had been corresponding with a teller, the teller at the Laporte Bank, who had handled this transfer of Andrew's money, um, received from this teller a newspaper clipping about the fire at the Gunnis farmhouse. And Aisley, uh, again, who knew that his brother had gone to visit Bell and had been corresponding with Bell, actually. You know, Bell had written back and basically said she had no idea where Andrew had gone. Uh, Aisley decided to come to Laporte, investigate things for himself. So he arrived at Laporte, went out to the farmstead, um, and, you know, was kind of poking around, didn't see anything. You know, was about to leave, and then, as you say, you know, it suddenly occurred to him to ask Maxon, you know, if there had been any places on the farm that had recently been, you know, recently been dug into. And Maxon said there was, in fact, such a place, and, and uh, he led Paisley to it, and the two of them began digging, digging up. And, you know, within very short order, they uncovered the extremely grisly remains of uh, Andrew Helgelian's uh, decapitated and dismembered body. How many bodies, once they began the serious excavation, were unearthed? And what was media response? You talk about, you know, responsible journalism, and then you talk about the media at that time uh, and its reporting. Right. Well, uh, you know, they began searching through other what they called soft spots, uh, you know, in Bell's yard. Uh, It's a little hard to know exactly how many victims um, they ultimately found because sometimes, you know, there were a bunch of bones mixed together. But there are apparently a minimum of 11 victims that they dug up, one of whom uh, turned out to be uh, Jenny Olson, uh, the foster daughter who had presumably right. gone off to a seminary in California, and whose whereabouts, you know, you know, whose fate then, you know, was, you know, ultimately discovered. So, you know, this was an incredibly sensational, you know, discovery. I mean, you know, here was this Midwestern farm woman uh, who had, 
you know, turned out to be, you know, one of the most horrific, well, they didn't have the term serial murder at the time, but that's what we would call her, obviously. You know, serial murders who had, you know, lured this whole string of lonely Norwegian bachelors to her farmhouse, you know, murdered them, chopped up their bodies, buried them in her hog lot, you know, turned her farm into, well, you know, became known as the murder farm. Um, and, you know, as you say, you know, the newspapers back then, particularly called the Yellow Press, which was the precursor of the modern-day tabloid, you know, uh, treated this case very, very, very sensationally. I mean, it was inherently sensational. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they played it up with every means at their disposal. So, you know, the Laporte uh, murder farm, you know, became really nationally notorious as this, uh, you know, as a site of these horrors. And, uh, you know, it immediately attracted, as these kinds of places do, you know, these hordes of morbid curiosity seekers. Yeah, it's incredible the huge crowds you're talking about that were wanted to witness this and then the the selling of photos, uh, you know, ghastly photos were especially prized and that many names in the press, female bluebird, queen of crime, and even hell's princess. Yeah. Well, you know, again, uh, as we do now, um, you know, whenever there's some kind of uh, major serial killer that has been, you know, either at large or been discovered, you know, the press has a tendency to immediately coin some sort of horror movie or, you know, fairy tale ogre nickname for the person. Um, so yeah, all these all these names rebel. You know, the Lady Bluebeard. I mean, ultimately, Lady Bluebeard, you know, came to be the favorite. Um, right. You know, because obviously both because of the number of victims she claimed, and also, you know, very very significantly. And this really links her to the original fairy tale character Bluebeard more than like a lot of like the, you know a lot of the male Bluebeards, Henry Landrew and. Johan Hawk, they're called Bluebeards because they murdered these wives. You know, Belle was much more like the fairy tale Bluebeard in that she would dismember the bodies of her victims, um, you know, which the fairy tale Bluebeard did. But anyway, yeah, I mean, you know, the murder, the, the, the first Sunday after the discovery of these crimes, an estimated 16 to 20,000 people, you know, flocked to the Gunnis Farm. They had excursion trains running from Chicago. Um, it was, you know, it was a carnival. They had uh, people setting up cake stands and ice cream stands, families, you know, picnicking on the yards and, you know, people scouring the place for any little kind of relic, you know, what nowadays we would call murderabilia. And then people selling all these postcards, some postcards, you know, of let's say Andrew Helgelian's, you know, dug up head. Um, in fact, you know, People, listeners who are interested, you know, can go. I mean, go online and see a lot of these postcards. And then they had that, you know, one of the most, you know, kind of amazing features of this was they had um, put all of the decomposed remains of Bell of the victims they had excavated. They put them in this carriage shed, this little outbuilding on the farm. 
And uh, you can see there are these photographs of, you know, it's like Disney World. <laughs> you know, it's like people lining up to go see Pirates of the Caribbean or something. You know, there are these huge lines of people, men, women, children, all dressed up in their Sunday finest, you know, lining up outside this carriage shed so they could go in and, you know, file in, you know, and walk past and view, you know, these reeking, rotting remains of these victims. So, um, you know, one of the things that always interests me when I'm researching these books, you know, is discovering, you know, that a lot of phenomena that people now think are very specific, you know, to our own time, you know, we're all interested in this gruesome, morbid stuff, you know, how this has always been going along. So, Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Part of this, too, is this, is that, there was a theory that despite, again, you can explain this, there's a coroner Mac involved here, that there's mm-hmm. the charred remains are very, very small of a very big woman, but despite mm-hmm. that, he makes his conclusions mm-hmm. as to whether this is Bell. But the media, yeah. the press, has a different story and theory about whether she's alive or not. Tell us about this. Well, you know, my book is subtitled The Mystery of Belgunas, and one of the central mysteries, again, which remains alive to this day, is whether she survived the fire or not. Um, you know, there was always this split opinion. You know, on the one hand, you know, there were those who believed, you know, that Bell had perished in the fire. Again, then there's this other question. Did Bell set the fire herself? You know, did she realize that you know, the law was finally closing in on her. You know, she knew Baisley, Helgelian, you know, had become very, very suspicious of her. Did she finally, you know, just spiral out of control and commit suicide and kill herself and her children? You know, that would, that's a plausible possibility. Um, another possibility was, did Ray Lanthier, you know, set the fire in revenge? And, um, anticipating our discussion a little, but, you know, he ultimately was convicted of arson. Um, and then the other possibility was, uh, you know, that the torso, the woman's torso that was found in the basement wasn't Bell at all, that she had staged the whole thing, you know, that she had lured some woman to the farm that killed her and decapitated her and, uh, you know, murdered the children and, and set the whole thing up and set the fire and then absconded, got away with it. Uh, as you said, I mean, the, the body, the woman's body that was found in the basement, you know, was much, much, much smaller than what Bell weighed, you know, but I mean, there were some experts who testified, you know, the body had just shrunk as a result of the fire. You know, there were other experts who believe that uh, I don't quite remember exactly what the charred torso weighed. It was like 75 pounds or something. Yeah. You know, whether, yeah. uh, you know, a 280-pound woman could shrink that much, even, you know, under, you know, and subjected to that kind of intense heat. But that, you know, again, that remains a big question. You know, there are people to this day, you know, who believe that Bell got away with murder. Well, multiple murder. The thing is that there was a uh, what's the word an effort to be able to prove or disprove this, mm-hmm. and yeah. they went about it a certain way. What was it? The one yeah. thing that they were to search for that would conclude that she was still alive 
or pardon me, still yep. alive or died in that fire? Well, they knew uh, that Bell had recently had this dental work done and had a bridge made by the local dentist, which had a number of gold teeth in it. So the feeling was if they could turn up this dental bridge, uh, which might have survived the fire. Sorry. Um, yes. And so, yeah, so, my yes. Phone did something too. so they decided that if they could turn up this dental bridge, you know, this would prove supposedly, um, you know, that the body was out of Bell. You know, that the skull itself might have disintegrated, uh, but the enamel of the teeth uh, and somehow the gold, you know, false teeth would somehow survive the flames. Uh, so they enlisted the aid of uh, this elderly prospector um, whose name inevitably was Old Klondike. Uh, well, that's what they called him. And, uh, and he constructed this sluice on the farm uh, and began this process of sifting through the ashes uh, of of the uh, uh, that were dug out of the cellar in this effort to locate this bridge. And after about a week's worth of effort, in fact, uh, he did find this bridge work. Again, you know, that turned out to be not as definitive as some people hoped it would be. A, you know, there are people who believed, well, you know, Bell was clever enough to have set up you know, the stage, you know, this whole supposed death of hers, she could easily have managed to extract this bridge work, uh, even though was part of it was connected to one of her molars. Um, there's also some, there were also some testimony by some eyewitnesses who claimed that old Klondike had planted the bridge work himself. Um, so again, you know, the, the discovery of this bridge, it did not resolve the question of whether Bell survived the fire. Yes. Uh, and, and as a result of that, though, the media still speculated that there wasn't, uh, that even though that they said that there was the part of her tooth, why would she take one of her own teeth out? And yeah. instead of just throwing the bridge work, take one of her teeth out. So that was the question. Um, yeah. But some of this also came up at Ray Lamphere's trial because they were trying to give an alternative to Ray being the killer, didn't they? Right. Well, you know, Wirt Warden, who was representing Ray at the trial, I mean, his basic defense was you know, that Ray was not, you know, that, that Bell Gunness had set the fire. You know, they knew, for example, that on the, 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 the day of the fire, in addition to going and making her will and letting everyone know that, you know, she was afraid that Ray was going to kill her, she had also gone to the general store and purchased uh, some kerosene, uh, which Joe Max, the handyman, testified he had seen, you know, stored inside the house. But Warden's strategy, you know, for defending his client was to try to persuade the jurors that that Bell herself had set the fire and that she was still alive, um, and you know that Ray was being framed for this. You talk about the noble effort by uh, Warden to defend 
um, Ray Lamphier. But also at the same time, you talk about a notable sighting. There was you talk about all the sightings of Bell Gunness yeah. in the, all kinds of various places. But in the book, it's very very exciting when it looks like Bell Gunness is discovered on a train. Tell us about this event. Very very interesting part of this book. Uh, well, thank you for saying so. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Do, uh, well, forgive me um, for not immediately. I I know there was a woman. Um, who was heading for New York? Is that the one? Who was yes, uh, the widow, the widow, yeah. and then the two yeah, women that seemed well, to recognize know, her. You know, she was identified, um, uh, you know, by some fellow passengers, you know, as Belle, and you know, she got off the train, she was arrested, and, and uh, you know, and held overnight, uh, and uh, yeah, and then it proved to be uh, I. I'm sorry, I don't exactly remember who she was, but. Yeah, you know, she was not Del Gunnis. Um, you know, she ended up suing the police. Um, but Absolutely. you know, it's it's like Elvis sightings in a way. You know, I mean, whenever there's some, you know, some notorious criminal who is on the loose, you know, police are inundated with, you know, sightings of of this person. Uh, you know, there were people who swore they had run into Bell, you know, that they had run into Bell, uh, you know, seen her not far on the road, uh, not far from her farmhouse one evening. In fact, I recently was contacted by a woman, I haven't had a chance to speak to her yet, um, you know, who contacted me to say that her grandmother had known Bell Gunness and was one of these people who swore she had seen Bell in the vicinity after the fire. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was very, very common. And Bell was, you know, for years and years, decades, really, you know, after, you know, after these events, there were sightings of Bell in all different parts of the country, sometimes out of the country. Wow. You you alluded to or mentioned that uh, Ray was finally convicted of arson. Yeah. Tell us uh, a, a, just a bit about the trial and why he was not convicted of anything else, and what was the sentence for the arson in the end? Um, well, he was yeah. It was a little. It was a little. It was a little peculiar. Um, he was. You know, convicted of setting the fire, but acquitted of murder, which you know, as Warden himself pointed out, didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, no, because you know, presumably, if he set the fire, uh, you know, he was also responsible for for the murders. Um, but you know, he was sent to prison. He he died, you know, shortly thereafter of tuberculosis. Um, you know, always protesting his his innocence. Uh, Again, as with so many other features of the Gunnis case, there's all this ambiguity surrounding uh, Ray's last days because there were claims made by a minister who befriended him that Ray, you know, had made a confession. Uh, but then, you know, then the minister's own story 
you know, is called into question. Again, the, the yellow press initially leapt all over this, you know, and, and uh, you know, um, printed all of these, you know, trumpeted the news uh, of, you know, Ray's supposed confession, but then it turned out that the whole thing might have, you know, just been this concoction. So... You you also talk about Ray with this at the trial. They talked that the, the, one of the things that he couldn't get past was when he had said that he had ran past that fire and had said that uh, he didn't want to. It was he wanted to mind his own business, so he had saw the fire. So there was mm-hmm. that uh, that that evidence at that. And you mm-hmm. say then he he passes away shortly after from tuberculosis. What happens with this story in terms of it fading away or or remaining in in the public's uh, eye? Well, as I said, I mean, you know, periodically there would be these stories uh, about people who claimed that, uh, you know, that they had seen Bell or this or that person, this or that neighbor of theirs. They were sure it was Bell Gunness. I mean, it really exploded back into the headlines in the 1930s um, when uh, a a, a California woman named Esther Carlson, um, who poisoned this employer of hers, uh, was suddenly suspected of being Belgunas. Investigators searching through her possessions discovered some photographs of children that were identified as Bell Gunness's children. And there were people from LaPorte, Indiana, um, who were living uh, in Los Angeles at the time, um, you know, who came to uh, view Esther Carlson, Esther before she could be brought to trial for the murder of this employer herself died of tuberculosis. But there were these men who had known Bell Gunness very well, who came to view her body in the morgue and um, emphatically, uh, you know, declared that she was Bell Gunness. So, you know, for a very, very long time, the belief was, you know, that this woman, Esther, was Bell Gunness. And again, this became a, you know, there was a lot of publicity attached to this. Absolutely. You you also talk about just with this as well that the newspapers printed the letters from Bell Gunness to Andrew. Again, very very sensationalistic yeah. uh, portrait of yeah. of this relationship and these letters. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about that um, is that one of the most infamous letters that Bell had supposedly written to, Helgelion, uh, is a letter that ends uh, with something like, you know, be prepared to stay forever. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and that letter got a lot of publicity and uh, people who wrote about the Gunnis case for many years afterwards, I mean, even like up until very recently, you know, would often cite that as the most chilling of the letters, you know, that Bell Gunnis wrote. Turned out 
you know, that letter was a complete concoction by one of the journalists who was covering the case at the time. Um, you know, uh, it was a very, very, I mean, uh, in, my, in my own early readings of the Gunnis case, I always assumed that that was an authentic letter, you know, that really, you know, revealed just how monstrous Bell Gunnis was, you know, that she was sort of sadistically taunting him that way. Um, yeah. But what I discovered was that letter was a complete, you know, it was a complete forgery. Um, but it was published at the time in the newspapers as a real thing. I mean, it gave you really, you know, insight into the journalistic ethics of the time, you know, and, you know, these writers for the Hearst newspapers and the Pulitzer newspapers, you know, had no compunction about just making stuff up to make the story more sensational. No, no, not at all. You talk about the letters, and for those that will read this book, um, there are all kinds of examples of Bell Gunnis and her correspondence with various people, including Andrew Hegelian, and and also what I wanted to mention too is that there seems to be uh, an absence of photos in a lot of these books, but in your book, some incredible, amazing photos are included. So I want to uh, congratulate you on that. The incredible research in this book, and just one incredible story. I want to thank you very much, Harold Schechter, for coming on and talking about Hell's Princess, the mystery of Bell Gunnis, butcher of men. Uh, for those, do you have a Facebook page? Uh, how could people find out more about your work, which is incredible, <laughs> prolific? Thank you. Um, tell us how they might do that. Uh, well, you know, what I suggest most is just Googling my name. Um, I do have a Facebook page, uh, which actually is maintained by somebody else because I'm not really a social media person. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, but you can find it on Harold.Schechter or HaroldSchechter.com. Um, but yeah, just Google and Harold Schechter uh, will turn up lots of stuff. Uh, let me just make one slight uh, emendation to one of your remarks. Um, the the actual hardcover book um, does not have illustrations, um, but I but there's a, the book was also published in this new format called Kindle in Motion. Um, Right, which is really you know very very exciting, uh, and not only is that very very richly illustrated, um, but some of the illustrations actually move. <laughs> Hence the name. Um, you know, there's this little animation that goes on. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, so uh, I mean, the hardcover book is very very beautiful. I have to say, and the actual cover of the book beneath a dust jacket is uh, you know really striking. The other alternative, the Kindle in Motion, has uh, all these illustrations. So. Yeah, that's what I got was the Kindle version, and it's incredible. Again, the photos uh, you don't see so much anymore, and they were you know, striking and incredible and uh, really added to the story. I want yep. to thank you very much, Harold, for coming on. Hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Good night.